So as we get back into Matthew today, just a brief recap to kind of highlight where we've been. Uh, One of the best ways to get to know Jesus better and love him more is spending time reading the Gospels. So particularly the Gospel of Matthew helps us with that. Um, The Gospel begins with a lineage, so it's an actual connection that ties Jesus to reality. It anchors him in history. It shows that he had a great-great-grandpa. We know who he was. So it establishes him in truth and presence on this earth. Uh, Matthew's main theme and everything that Matthew points to is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the physical and spiritual space where God reigns. So it's where his presence is known, his power is demonstrated, and it's where his will is embraced in our human hearts. So as um, we continue in Matthew, he teaches his people how in his kingdom we live and interact relationally. Uh, He talks about attributes that his followers have through relationship in everyday life. He teaches on real-life stuff like anger, revenge, hypocrisy, trust versus worry, divorce, and generosity. And then there's a series of miracles that reveals Jesus' divine nature and stories about how people respond to Jesus and his message. Some respond in love and worship, and some respond in anger and animosity. So now we're rounding the corner, heading toward the conclusion, and uh, we're finishing up uh, with chapter 21, beginning in chapter 21 today as we work toward finish. So from here on out, everything that happens in Matthew uh, happens in Jerusalem, and it's foreshadowed in chapter 20. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem with his followers, and he gives them a little heads up. Paraphrasing, he says, we're going to Jerusalem and I am going to be given over to the Jewish rulers and then convicted and sentenced to death. I'm going to be handed over to the Romans where I'm going to be crucified, but I will rise on the third day. And then a bit later, he tells his followers, our leaders, uh, other leaders use authority and oppression to rule their people, but I won't be like that among you because I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And the text for this morning in Matthew 21, 1 through 17 is, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And then he entered Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove all out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children cried out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Okay, Trevor's going to bring God's word to us this morning. So would you just join me in lifting him up in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness in big things and small things. And we invite your presence here through your Holy Spirit to reside in Trevor and in all of us as he brings forth your word that he's studied so hard for this past week. So give him your words, give him your spirit, give him your peace, and give us attentive hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Deanna. Have you ever used the phrase, I love them, I just don't like them? Well, does it matter that you like God? Well, if heaven and hell is this simple, you're in or you're out, you have to get through the gates into the good place, then no, it doesn't matter if you like God. Because what matters is that you meet the metric required for entry. And once you're in, you get the reward you wanted. God in this situation becomes kind of like a bouncer, that you've got to make God happy in order to get into the good place. So maybe what matters in that situation is that you get enough morality points before you die. Maybe it's, uh, it matters how thoroughly and fervently you, you pray and you do all the rituals and jump through all the religious hoops. And maybe you get graded on a curve if you've given enough money to the church, right? Now, in a situation like that, God is a bouncer. He's what stands between you and the good things that we want. So liking him really doesn't matter. It matters if you're in or not. In that sort of uh, unhelpful thinking, what we can summarize that as heaven is good, make God happy to get in. So in that sort of situation, liking God feels secondary at best. But that is not actually what the library of scripture teaches. 
Uh, What the library of scripture shows us is that salvation much more beautifully is being rescued from relational distance or alienation from God and being rescued into relational reconnection. And that does begin here and now in the salvation and the transformation of the human heart. And then it also continues in new heaven and new earth for eternity. But at the crux of it is this relational reconnection. So according to the scripture, heaven is a physical space, but it is also a relational reality of nearness and trust and intimacy and love with God. Now that all sounds great, but going back to our first question, what if I don't like God? What if I don't actually want nearness and trust and intimacy and love from him? What if I have a bone to pick with him? Well, thinking about things and attributes that I might and might not like, I, what comes to my mind um, as an attribute that's challenging to like is arrogance. Now, there's some irony in here because I am a recovering arrogant person, and so like, I feel a little bit funny talking about this, but the opposite of arrogance is humility, right? Now, when an arrogant person acts strongly, it gives me fear. Does anyone feel this way? When an arrogant person acts strongly, it makes me realistically afraid because I start to ask, who will they hurt? Who and what are they not considering when they act forcefully? The opposite of that, though, is a humble person. When a humble person acts strongly, I feel comforted. I feel safety because I know that they are acting out of love and thoughtful conviction with gentleness. When I don't agree with an arrogant person, I worry. I worry that they're going to write me off, they're going to dismiss me, they're going to put me in a corner, and they will never consider my perspective, right? Arguing with an arrogant person feels a little bit like my way or the highway. But the opposite of that, when you don't agree with a humble person, at least for me, I find that even in disagreement, I find that I'm still able to love and trust them. Because usually they are open-hearted and generous, even if their position is firmly set. So I've got a bit of a game for us right now. Uh, You guys ever gone out um, to dinner and you know on the kids' menus there's little games and one of those is uh, which one of these does not belong? Have you ever played that game? I've got a couple pictures for you real fast. uh, We're going to scroll through these. This first one is from Alexander the Great. This is Alexander the Great mounted on a steed. I've got another one. This is a painting of Charles V. Remember, which one is not like the other? Here's another one. This is uh, Emperor, if I'm pronouncing it right, Ayatoy in Japan. This is a statue of that emperor. Here's one more you'll probably recognize. This is Emperor Napoleon. Napoleon. It's a famous piece of artwork. I've got one more king for you. Which of these is not like the other? When we read scripture, right, this is a 2,000-year-old text at this point that we're reading in Matthew. Sometimes we have to put in extra work to translate the cultural images that we come across. And our culture might not, at first glance, you've probably done this, I know I have, first glance, great, humble, mounted on a donkey, and I kind of move on. It's hard for me to see the shockingness of what's happening in this picture. So let's, we've already done some of the work to translate that, but let's carry that out a little bit further. I w- I'm going to open this up to some dialogue with you. I'd love to hear your voice. Uh, Amy, could you go back to Napoleon for me? Looking at this man, what message is being communicated by this ruler on a horse? What, what attributes, what vibes do you get from him? Power, 
Victory. Confidence, courage. Style. That guy's fly. Anything else? Direction. Yeah. Napoleon and the artist portraying Napoleon painted this picture so you would feel everything you are feeling right now. They intended for you to go, man, he's so powerful and courageous and confident, and I'm going to follow him. But here's the thing. How many of you guys want this guy hanging out in your living room? How many of you are right now in this picture going, I just desire to share my heart and feel safe and comfortable in the intimacy and the nearness of this person's presence? No. No. So seeing men like this posture themselves with strength and dominance and glory, if I can be blunt, it feels really arrogant. It does not make them seem accessible or desirable for eternal intimacy. And if I'm being honest, it just feels super inflated. It feels like they're projecting something that isn't actually true to life. Now, Amy, would you go back to my Jesus on a donkey photo? What's the message being communicated by this ruler on a beast? Peace, care. I heard April say something, but I didn't hear it. Uh, Yeah, what else do you feel as you watch this or look at this photo? Love, accessible, gentleness, tenderness, community. Even the donkey is at peace. The donkey is settled under the reign of this ruler. Intentional intent. My point here is that Jesus himself intended for his crowd to feel the same things you are feeling. In the same way that Napoleon got on a horse and and paid lots of money to say, hey, paint me really big and, and glorious, Jesus intentionally said, I want my crowds to know something about me, so this is how I will bring myself to them. But here's where it's a little bit different. Where Napoleon had to posture to project something that was not real, Jesus put something on display to reveal what was true. He was not putting forward an image of gentleness just so people like me. He was saying, it's important that people know who I really am. And so he sat on a donkey. Seeing this man, this Jesus the Christ, who is actually full of strength, victory, and glory, just like the men before, but then choose to present himself as humble, accessible, and lonely, is beautiful to me. This is the kind of person that I want to like and spend time with that I would look forward to an eternity of intimacy with. Matthew here has two main points. We're we're looking at kind of a paired section, Uh, Matthew entering Jerusalem and then Matthew cleansing the temple. And Matthew really can be summarized as having two main points. The king rides a donkey and the king restores the temple. That is the simple summary that Matthew is trying to communicate here. He rides a donkey, he he restores the temple. If I was going to put both those in my own words, I would say my main point for the sermon is the humble king brings salvation without barriers. The humble king brings salvation without barriers. Now, if we do not understand Jesus' humility here and let that translate into a bigger, lifelong understanding of him, it's likely that we will not ever experience his closeness because he will just be the God on a horse. 
But if we understand this story, we understand Jesus is the king who is near and present and tender and humble, powerful, glorious, and humble. And then if we, if we do not understand what Jesus does in the temple by restoring it and cleaning it, it's likely that we're going to continue to get hung up with religious transactions with God and not actually experience the joy of knowing him or his grace that is freely given. That's why today's text matters. So let's get into the text. I'm not going to read it again. I'm going to point out a couple things, but Deanna did such a great job reading. Uh, if we're picking up the bigger story of Matthew, uh, you'll remember that in chapter 20, uh, there is a journey that Jesus and his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem. Now they've arrived at Jerusalem here in chapter 21. And Jesus has already told them, we are going to Jerusalem. When we get there, I will be arrested and accused by the Jewish leaders. They'll hand me over to the Romans. I will be crucified, but I will rise. So Jesus knows upon entering Jerusalem, everything from here on out is the tipping point. This is the point of no return. There's no going back from entering the gates of Jerusalem at this point. Now, literarily, Matthew, the author, opens Jesus's entry by placing Jesus's feet on the Mount of Olives. If you notice that, Jesus came through Bethphage and went to, or was at the Mount of Olives. And this is just another example of Matthew, the author's masterful use of Old Testament scriptures. In the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 14, uh, you, you will have remembered that um, Deanna earlier read Zechariah 9, which is quoted in Matthew. This is a quote from Zechariah 14, where it's saying that the Savior will stand on the Mount of Olives. And so as Matthew, the author, is ushering us as the audience in, he's saying, look, he's here. He's on the Mount of Olives. And then he continues to then quote Zechariah 9 a little bit later. Now, Jesus, upon entering, he gets to the Mount of Olives, before he enters Jerusalem, he does something very surprising. He sends his disciples to get a female donkey and her colt. Now, there's two things that are surprising about this. The first surprising thing is there's this sense of something supernatural happening. There's this sense of supernatural knowledge and authority that he gives his disciples directions. Do you guys remember hearing this? He says, go there. It's going to be right here. And if they have any issues, just tell them the Lord sent you and it'll happen. How, why, we're not totally sure. There's an air of supernatural events here. The second thing that's surprising is that he stops for a donkey at all. Up until this point in, in Jesus's three years of public ministry, he's walked hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles on foot. He is coming right now from Galilee to Jerusalem, which is a journey of about 100, 105 miles. He just walked 98 miles and then chose to stop on the Mount of Olives to ride a donkey. Why would he choose to walk the last 1.5 miles or choose to ride the last 1.5 miles? This is not a matter of practicality. This is a matter of, of revealing himself to the people that are going to be in Jerusalem. It is not a publicity stunt, but it is a PR statement. He wants to be seen for something. He's intentionally doing something here. He wants the crowds of Jerusalem to see him for who he really is and crowds there are. This is the Passover week uh, or leading into the Passover week of Jerusalem. And so in Jerusalem, the average population would have been about 30,000 people. 30,000 people, if you guys want to consider that, you know, about the size of Post Falls 10 years ago. Um, <clears throat> but during Passover, 
the, there would have been about 100,000 religious pilgrims that would have gathered into Jerusalem. So a town of 30,000 swells to 150, 120,000 people. To put that into our context, that would be like um, Bloomsday, Spokefest, and Hoopfest, and Coeur Ironman all happening in Post Falls at once. It is a lot of people. And Jesus has chosen this packed religious festival to present himself to the gathered nation of Israel. And there's two things that Matthew wants us to see happening when Jesus presents himself. The first is that Jesus is acknowledged by the crowds as a royal savior that is anointed by God. Three points, or or two points of, of evidence here that you'll see. Uh, First, um, Matthew quotes Hosea. He says, behold, your king is coming to you. Now, that is more for the reader's benefit than for the crowds, uh, but that is because Matthew wants us to see what's happening, what the crowds are perceiving. But the crowds are saying two things. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Hosanna uh, means save, please. In its most literal translation, Hosanna means save, please. Now, sometimes uh, Hosanna could be used as a cry of praise, but really it's this cry of salvation. And so it, it can be used in kind of one of two ways, maybe a little mixture of both. It can be an actual request, save, please. Or it could be this like cry of acclamation, kind of like save, please, a little bit like God save the queen, right? It's not an actual like prayer, but it's this, this public acclamation of royalty and reverence. And so Hosanna is probably this mixture of both. It's save, please, son of David. And also God save the son of David. It's probably this mixture of both of those things. So that's what Hosanna means. And then son of David is this prophesied person coming from the Old Testament who is uh, assumed to be the one who will establish God's kingdom and save Israel. So the crowds, with this simple cry, Hosanna to the son of David. They're saying, save us, king. Save us, rescuing king. So that's the first thing that Matthew wants us to see is the crowds say, you are the saving, anointed king. The second thing that Matthew wants us to see in this little passage is that as this saving, anointed king, Jesus is a humble servant. He is not the Napoleon on a white stallion. Matthew quotes Zechariah chapter 9, Behold, your king is coming, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And I want to draw our attention to the, the humility of a donkey, but then notice the last line, a beast of burden. The idea of a king that is a humble, uh, intentionally aligning himself with a beast of burden changes everything. Martin Luther, the great reformist, puts it this way. This is a bit of a long quote, but I think it's pretty easy to understand. Listen with me. Martin Luther says this, this gospel in Matthew wants to entice us to faith above all else. Jesus is presented as sheer grace, humility, and goodness. And whoever believes that of him, believes that Jesus is that way, is blessed. Look at him. He rides no stallion, which is a war animal. And he comes not with fearful pomp and power, but he sits on a donkey, 
which is not a war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. Thereby, Jesus shows that he doesn't come to terrify people or to drive people or to oppress them, but to help them to carry their burdens and to take them on himself. And as this Jesus enters, the crowds receive him, they throw down their cloaks and they cut branches off. And these things are an old, uh, a Jerusalem way of laying out the red carpet to receive someone of infinite value. Now, as I've been thinking about Jesus as Matthew wants us to understand him, I think Jesus is so, so humble here. And it is beautiful. But there is an important distinction between humble and chill, you know? There's a difference between being a humble person and being a chill person. Have you guys uh, seen this billboard that was in Post Falls the last couple months? Yeah, it's Santa Claus. You know, he knows what you've been doing, good or bad. He understands everything, but don't worry. He's chill. He's not going to, like, tell anyone or do anything or actually act on righteousness or evil. No, don't worry. He's chill, bro. What this billboard is saying is don't worry. Even if you do something bad, it's not like Santa really cares. It's not like he's actually going to hold it against you. Don't worry. And this makes for a really cute billboard, right? It's funny. I chuckled. But this makes for a horrible king, a really horrible king. Could you imagine even if some, a, a small position like a local police chief just said, don't worry, it's chill. I know what you've done. I've, I see the record, but don't worry. Gratefully, Jesus in his humility, is, he cares enough to act strongly. He cares enough to act strongly in his humility. He is not chill, but he is very humble. And what Jesus uses his humble strength for is he uses it to drive out and to drive and to bring in. Jesus uses his humble strength to drive out and bring in. I'm going to just spend a few minutes talking about driving out and then bringing in. We see when we get to uh, verse 12, as Jesus is cleansing or restoring this temple, he drives out vendors and money exchangers. Now, going just to some historical context, why are they there? Well, in the Old Testament, God uh, gave Israel laws and instructions that helped them understand right and wrong, life and death, right? This is what we see in the, the first five books of the Old Testament. He gave them law and instruction. In those same five books, he also gave them a system of sacrifice, and we often get kind of hung up on this because uh, it's so foreign to us. But what this uh, system was meant to do was to teach them that in their imperfection, amidst their imperfection, he would make a way to forgive them and to make them righteous again. Now, part of that system included substitution. A life for a life, blood for blood, an animal substituted in place of our consequence. So the consequence is taken off of Israel, placed onto an animal, and it receives our consequence. And this system was always intended to hold, it's like a placeholder for the real substitution that would come in Jesus. Human for human, life for life. Now this sacrificial system was partially built around annual festivals, 
where people would gather and they would worship to God and they would bring their sacrifices, right? Life for life. So they would bring all their animals to Jerusalem as both a gift for God as, and then also as a substitute for their own sin of that past season. So they would bring their uh, sacrifice to represent the past season. And what it means if you're bringing sacrifices from Galilee to Jerusalem or from Judea to Jerusalem, what that means is family road trip. Now, uh, this is a picture of my son. I can show it because he's cute. Now, one of the things that has boggled my mind as I've been a father is how an additional half of a person can make doing anything really, really hard. Uh, we have some family that lives in Missoula. Normally, it's like a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour road trip, depending on how fast you drive. Add a one-year-old into that mix. Somehow, this takes all day. This is a six-hour journey. By the time you're stopping for, for food and for naps and diapers, like, it's forever. Now, try traveling with your whole family on foot for multiple days, dragging a goat. <laughs> the challenge that we experience, giving our kids an iPad and some goldfish and trying to get to Montana, now add on foot with a goat. This is hard. And so, very practically, the Jewish people figured out a really good system. They said, hey, let's sell goats and birds and sheep in Jerusalem so people don't have to drag the goat. They can just drag their kids. And then they buy the goat when they get here. Great. That works well. But two things have happened over time. The first thing is that religion has become commercialized. What's happened is access to money becomes access to God. Second thing that happens is sacrifices become the whole point. As long as you're sacrificing properly, you're good to go. You, you met the metric. As long as you check the boxes in the temple or the church, then it doesn't matter what you do elsewhere. Unfortunately, this continues to be a reality even to today, right? So together, this commercialization of religion and the checking of the boxes to get into the good place without any sort of heart or life change, those things have misrepresented God and they've become barriers to life with God. Summarized, if you cannot participate in our commercial exchange, you cannot access God. And if you do participate in our commercial exchange, then you're good to go. Because God is like totally chill. This is why Jesus entering it says, it is a den of robbers. Notice he drives out both the sellers and the buyers. He doesn't just drive out the commercialists. He drives out the sellers and the buyers because they are both corrupting it. The vendors are robbing and creating barriers through commercialization. The participants, the buyers, are robbers because they are whitewashing their own corruption and assuming they don't need to change their lives because they're doing all the right sacrifices. And Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And then he mashes on Jeremiah 7, where he says, but you make it a den of robbers. He's synthesizing God's heart in the Old Testament and presenting it for clarity, for clear correction and accusation to the leaders of the church. 
Now, what's amazing to me is this part from Isaiah 56, my house shall be called a house of prayer. In Isaiah's original context, this is actually about God's open-hearted posture to the whole world. Often we get hung up on, why does God love Israel more than everyone else? Isaiah 56 is showing us he doesn't. He's chosen Israel to be a blessing and and a, a a lineage for Jesus to come to open up God, access to God to the whole world. And these particular markets here in Matthew 21, those markets have been set up in a part of the temple called the court of the Gentiles. So part of the temple, it was not a walled off area for Jews alone. It was, there was an area of the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence was most intimate. And there were requirements around God's chosen people and priests there. But God intentionally expanded the house of God to include a court for the whole world, the court of the Gentiles. So these vendors took over what should have been a place of worship and belonging for the world a place that should have made the life with God open to the world, and they closed it through their commercialization. Their commercialization edged out the foreigner's place in the home of God. So Jesus uses his humble strength to drive out corruption and misrepresentation. But he also uses it in verse 14 to bring in people in need of healing. The blind, the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Jesus uses his humble strength to bring in people in need of healing. And isn't it this so refreshing that this is what matters to Jesus? What matters to him is not the fancy horse. What matters to him is not a lot of money or shiny, polished people. What matters to Jesus is that his dad's house is open to the poor and the weak, the deformed and the unimpressive with zero barriers. That's what matters to Jesus, the humble king. And I love how this passage ends. This passage ends with children. The, the little ones, if, if you like went out the door and down the hallway, you would know they're the ones that are loud and messy and they don't have a whole lot to offer. But this passage ends when they praise Jesus. What this means is that the children got it. The children had a tenderness where they saw the weak people receiving love and they responded with praise and celebration rather than indignation and barriers. And in this temple restoration, temple clearing, what we see is Jesus shows who's really in charge. The priests were not the ones really in charge because when Jesus shows up, who's the guy everyone listens to? Jesus here is embodying the full revelation of God, the authority and the revelation of God. He's showing who he is in charge of the temple. He is in charge of access to God and he is revealing that God is not here for the shiny and the polished and those with money, but he is here to open the place of belonging God's family to the whole world, and he is here to remove barriers. Now, if this passage helps us to know and trust Jesus, which I think it does, it will teach us to do three things. 
It will teach us to trust Jesus as he removes barriers. Think about the difference between the children and the religious leaders. Some of the people were very mad that Jesus removed barriers. And they were indignant. And some of them trusted him and celebrated the grace of the kingdom of God. So we will trust Jesus to remove barriers. The second thing is we will bring our brokenness to him for healing. He is here with his authority and his humility to open the temple to the weak and the lame and the blind and the unimpressive. So we will come to him with our brokenness. The third thing is we will join the infants and the babies as they praise Jesus as the humble and rescuing king. Now, if you would like a main to-do here, I've got two. The first one, don't be indignant at Jesus. Number one, if there is indignation in your heart and your spirit, explore it. Why is it there? And in looking it to the face, choose to ask to see Jesus clearly in the ways that he's shaken up the world or the temple or your life. Choose to at least look at your indignation long enough to try to give it up. Look for what Jesus is really doing. The second main to-do, really practically schedule a time, because it won't happen naturally. Schedule a time, whether it's long or short, to write out a few things that you are consciously or subconsciously bartering with God with. As you begin to identify them, Choose to trade them for Jesus' gift of God's presence. That the presence of God has no barriers through the humble, saving king. He's here to remove barriers. Now, this bartering system for you could be literal commercialization, right? The more I give, the more I buy. If I have the right books or shirts or, you know, Jesus swag, then I'm good. Are we using that Christian consumerism to make us feel confident before God? Or is it spiritual? If I do X, Y, Z, then I will be good with God. What are the religious hoops that we know we need to jump through? Some of them are good things, just like the system of sacrifice. It was given by God as a revelation, but it can become twisted. So thing number one, don't be indignant. Thing number two, consider your heart And what are the barriers between you and God, physical or spiritual? And if we as a community and you as an individual take the time to understand the barriers and the payments and the ways we try to perform into God's grace, if we identify those things, we can let him remove them and then we will begin to receive God's affection as the humble, rescuing, generous king. That's what's at stake here. If we do not do this work of reflection, God will always be out here and we will always be handing him things. But if we do this work of reflection, he will come near and he will extend himself to us out of his grace and his love. What Matthew chapter 21, 1 through 17 shows us is that Jesus is the kind of king that rides a donkey. He's the kind of king that restores the temple. He's the kind of humble king that brings salvation without barriers. And this kind of king is not only easy to love, he's easy to like. Would you pray with me? Jesus, 
I need to have my understanding expanded. I, I need to trust your humility and your strength in the ways you've opened the Father's house more. Would you help me uh, do that in this passage? Would you help us receive that from you in this passage as well as do our part of reflecting long enough to begin to make a difference? So Jesus, would you, uh, Spirit, remind us to engage with this, to engage with your humility and your restoration and removal of barriers? And would that come home into our hearts and our life? And Spirit, would you speak specifically to each of us? What are the barriers that we um, use to uh, create safe distance between us? Would you help us identify those things and trust you enough to give them up? Would you protect us from indignation across our whole lives? And would you give us boldness to come to you with honesty and trusting your humility? Amen.